Welcome to Fiscal One-on-One. This Iowa Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by the Fiscal Services Division staff. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a fiscal topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. The following interview was conducted on October 17, 2013 by Adam Broek, Legislative Analyst with the Fiscal Services Division of the Legislative Services Agency. Adam interviewed Chuck Corral, Division Administrator for the Conservation and Recreation Division of the Department of Natural Resources. They discussed the Fish and Wildlife Trust Fund topics, including fund history, revenue and expenditures, and long-term fund stewardship. Hello, my name is Adam Broek, and I'm a Fiscal Analyst with the Legislative Services Agency. Today I'll be discussing the Fish and Wildlife Trust Fund with Chuck Carell, Division Administrator for the Conservation Recreation Division in the Department of Natural Resources. In this discussion we'll cover a brief history of the fund, sources of fund revenue, the role of the legislature, how fund money is spent, and finally fund stewardship. Chuck, thanks for taking the time to review the trust fund with us today. You're welcome. Beginning with the first and most basic question, What is the purpose of the Fish and Wildlife Trust Fund, and what's its background? The purpose of the Trust Fund is to fund fish and wildlife and hunting and fishing and trapping programs in the state of Iowa. It's been around for a very long time, but in 1996 there was a constitutional amendment passed that protected that fund from being spent on other purposes other than fishing and hunting, fish and wildlife, and related expenses. Moving on to the next topic, you touched on funding when you talked about the constitutional amendment, but can you elaborate a little bit on the types of revenue and how they influence fund operations? About 50% of the revenue that comes into the trust fund every year comes from hunting and fishing license fees, both resident and non-resident. About another 32% of the revenue that comes into the trust fund every year is from federal funds, and most of those federal funds come from excise taxes on uh, hunting and fishing equipment, boat motors, things like that. The next biggest chunk is what we refer to as miscellaneous. There's lots of little pieces like liquidated damages, interest, lease income from uh, grounds we may lease out, uh, concession income at the shooting ranges, fish restitution, sale of used equipment, things like that. That's about 10% of the revenue comes in that way. The next biggest chunk is fish and wildlife habitat stamps. Those are both required fees when you buy a fishing license or when you buy a wildlife or when you buy a hunting license and that constitutes about 7% of the income every year. And some of these revenues need to be allocated for specific purposes, particularly federal funds. Can you go into that a little bit? The majority of the federal funds we get from the excise taxes have to be spent on the purposes in the federal law, and those mesh very nicely with the purposes for the Fish and Wildlife Trust Fund. For example, the money that comes in from excise taxes on hunting equipment has to be spent on wildlife programs or hunting programs. Same thing with fishing programs. Other smaller pieces of that federal money would be grants, and of course we apply for those grants and we have to specify in our application how that money is going to be spent. But there again, it's all aimed at that same fishing and hunting, fish and wildlife program. Last question on revenue. About how many licenses are sold annually? Just to give some perspective on what it takes from users to fund these programs. Looking at 2012 license sales, and I have general numbers here. They're not very specific numbers, but uh, as far as hunting licenses goes, about 180,000 hunting licenses we sold in 2012. If you're looking at fishing licenses, it's about 360,000, something like that. 
And separate from the hunting licenses are deer tags. In 2012, we sold just under 400,000 deer tags. Have these numbers been relatively steady over the last five years? In the last five years or so, the deer tags have been declining slightly. That's what we expected because we increased the number of deer tags that were for sale in order to decrease the number of deer that we have in Iowa. And as the number of deer have responded to that, as the number of deer have gone down, we're starting to see the tag sales go down. They haven't gone down all that sharply. They topped out in about 2008 at about 425,000. We're just under 400,000 now. The fishing licenses have been fairly steady in the last five years. There may be, depending on how you look at the graph, is it a slight uptick in 2012 or is it just another bump? We won't know that. But over the last five years, the fishing licenses have been fairly steady, which actually bucks a national trend that they found in the last five years of fishing license sales actually going down a little bit. The hunting license sales over the last five years have dropped. It matches very nicely with the pheasant population, unfortunately. As the pheasant population is going down, the number of hunting licenses we sell have sold has gone down. Now in 2012, it appears that maybe we bottomed out and we've come up a little bit. Whether that's going to be a long-term trend, I guess, remains to be seen. To switch gears a little bit, the legislature plays a role in the trust fund or, or trust fund management. How does the legislature impact the trust fund year to year? Every year the legislature appropriates money from the trust fund for our operations of our fish and wildlife programs. In fiscal year 14, that appropriation was $41,223,225, up just slightly from fiscal year 13. There wasn't much of an increase there at all. So they appropriate that money for operations, our day-to-day -day operation of our fish and wildlife programs, supplies, vehicles, overhead costs, salaries for the employees, equipment, travel, all those kinds of things are that day-to-day -day operation. And that's they, they actually appropriate that money every year. Now there's a part of the trust fund that they don't appropriate every year, they refer to as an unappropriated balance and in uh, the Iowa Code, Chapter 455A, Section 10, the legislature has appropriated that unappropriated balance to the department for two things, contingencies and capital projects. Our capital projects include new boat ramps, new buildings for storing equipment, repairing the other buildings that we have, those kinds of things, all related to fish and wildlife, of course. But we have a bunch of capital, a bunch of infrastructure out there that we need to maintain and those capital projects go towards that. The contingencies part, the law says that if there is a contingency, we can get executive council approval and spend the money for that, or if the legislature's in session, we're required to get that approval from the legislature and appropriations bill to spend for that contingency. We haven't used that contingency much in the last few years. There has been a, a couple of standing contingencies that they put in the appropriations bill every year. Mm -hmm. We're allowed to use some of that money to fund the cost of retirement benefits for the conservation officers. Because that varies so much from year to year, it's hard to put it in a budget. So they let us do that out of that contingency portion of the trust fund. Also for two or three years running now, we've had a contingency appropriation for the funding of law enforcement radios. And we haven't got that money spent yet. We're still working with DAS on getting the RFP out and making sure that we're up to snuff on all the rules and regulations concerning the purchase of those kinds of equipment. So. That's two of the kind of long-standing contingencies that have been on the books. And then the legislature also sets license 
fees, if I'm correct. Is that accurate? That's correct. All of the fees are set in the statute. Uh, none of them are set in rules. And so if they're going to change, then the legislature has to change that. The DNR is responsible for setting the seasons and the quotas for all the hunting seasons that we have and the fishing bag limits and things like that. And so that has some impact. Probably where it has the biggest impact are the deer tags because the bag limits or the daily catch limits for fish really haven't changed all that much over the years. So they really don't affect the sales of fishing licenses. The same with pheasants and ducks and the quail and rabbits and those kinds of things. Those don't affect really the hunting license sales. But the deer tags, of course, uh, when we increased the number of deer tags that were available and we introduced the antlerless only tags back in, I think it was about 2005, we saw a big jump in the sales of those tags because we were offering more for sale. At that time, we had lots of deer that we were wanting to uh, reduce from the herd. And so that really had an impact on the Fish and Wildlife Trust Fund. There's a lot more money coming in when we sold those deer tags. So that's how the quotas and the seasons can sometimes affect the trust fund. Let's clarify what the trust fund money is not spent on. I think this confuses some of us. Well, the Iowa Constitution, and I'll stress that again, it's the Iowa Constitution says that trust fund dollars must be used for hunting, fishing, and trapping, management of fish and wildlife, and all related activities. So it cannot, it cannot be spent on things like parks or trails or state forests. And so it's not spent on those things. We are in compliance with the Constitution and all state laws. But the, the trust fund must be spent on fishing, hunting, trapping, fish and wildlife, and those things related to those things. Now that we have that part out of the way, let's get into, and we've done this a little bit already, but let's get into what the money is spent on a little bit more in a little bit more depth. Our fish and wildlife programs essentially come in three different bureaus within the DNR. Fisheries Bureau, the Wildlife Bureau, and the Law Enforcement Bureau. Fisheries Bureau gets about 27% of the money that we spend on our fish and wildlife programs. And there again, they're producing new fish at our hatcheries. They're stocking those fish. They're improving the opportunities to catch fish at lakes. They manage those fish populations and adjust them appropriately and put new size limits and things like that if that's appropriate. So all that activity is about 27% of the trust fund expenditures, operation expenditures. The Wildlife Bureau spends about 38%. They're a little bit bigger chunk of the pie because it takes more people and they also are kind of our land management bureau. So if we have a boat ramp access on a river, for example, it may have been cited and paid for by the Fisheries Bureau, but it's the Wildlife Bureau that's going to maintain it. They're going to mow the grass, they're going to put gravel in the parking lot, those kinds of things. So Wildlife Bureau has about 38% of that pie. Now their routine job duties are managing wildlife populations and habitat on not only public lands, but also on private lands. We give technical assistance to private landowners on how to manage their wildlife habitat on their private lands. We also have a piece there that helps mitigate the damage from wildlife on private land, whether it be in an urban setting, a deer eating or rose bushes, or whether it be out in the rural setting where you maybe have raccoons attacking the sweet corn patch or things like that. So we have a program that helps landowners deal with that damage. We also have a research section in the Wildlife Bureau that supports our management section. So we're not doing research for the sake of doing research or for the sake of, of increasing the body of knowledge. We're trying to figure out how to do a better job of managing wildlife populations on private land and on state land too. 
The last bureau is a law enforcement bureau, and they constitute about 31% of the expenditures from the trust fund. They, of course, enforce the fish and game laws across the state. We have 82 officers out in the field. They do boating and hunting accident investigations. They also do mentored hunts and other programs for youth, and they do outdoor skill workshops and teach people how to hunt, how to fish, how to trap, all those kinds of things. And the last piece of the operations pie is a small chunk management, about 4%. People like me, some of my direct staff that help me manage the division accounts for about 4% of the pie. In addition to administrative staff, you also do capitals, and you touched on that briefly. So we won't cover that again here. Moving on to the last topic, we need to touch on trust fund stewardship and a few key issues pertaining to long-term management. Can you kind of go into those issues, just how the DNR manages the trust fund over the long term? Well, we, of course, have good record-keeping on what we spent in years past and we project what we're going to spend into the future. We also project revenues. And that trust fund model we use almost monthly to help us with uh, decision-making, but we certainly use it quite a bit in the springtime, January, February, when we're working on our spending plans for the coming year. That model shows that we've got fairly flat income because the overall income is pretty much steady. Now, we've got boat registration comes in every three years, so we have a big spike every three years. That's about $6 million in a spike year, about $400,000 in an off year. So that takes some management and some planning ahead for those kinds of things. Uh, otherwise, we track the balance in the trust fund very closely. We have a balance forward every year because we don't spend the entire amount every year because we have that flat income. And if we'd spend it all every year, then we wouldn't have any money to spend. Mm -hmm. So what the overall process or procedure has been over the last couple decades is that when the legislature sees fit to increase the license fees, we have a big spike in income, and we build a balance at that point because right after a license increase, we're not spending as much as we bring in, and we're building a balance. And then as the years progress, our costs go up because of inflation, it costs more to do the same kinds of things. And pretty soon that balance, our expenditures are starting to meet the revenues that come in. And then at some point, our expenditures actually go over what our revenues are, and now we're eating into that balance. So you see that trend over the years of when you have a big spike in income from an increase, but our expenses are more gradual of an increase with inflation. And then at the point where those expense lines and the revenue lines cross and revenue lines are beneath the expense line and all of a sudden we're chewing up the balance and it's going to be time for another license increase or program cuts coming up to make sure that the funds stay solvent. We're at the point right now where we're chewing up balance and it looks like without significant changes in income or expenses we'll make it probably through fiscal year 16 before that balance is zero and we'll ha either have to have an increase in revenues or make uh, significant program cuts. When was the last license increase? The last general licensing increase was back in 2003. Now we've had some other increases since then. Non-resident hunting licenses were up in uh, 2009 if I remember correctly. We had an increase in the non-resident hunting licenses. But other than that, things have been fairly steady as far as prices goes. Now one thing I wanted to mention was the deer tag went from 26 to $27 in 2005 
but it was $25 going all the way back to 1991, so we have not had much of an increase at all in deer tag cost since 1991. Then there are also contingencies that you have to deal with that pop up, kind of like chronic wasting disease this past year. Do those pose a long-term threat to the fund? Could they in the future? A CWD could, a chronic wasting disease, if it gets into the wild herd, we could see a drastic reduction in the amount of deer tags that we sell. Some of that is going to be over concern, that disease infecting the meat and the meat, whether it's safe for consumption or not. Some of that is just going to be in the perception that the deer are sick and I don't want to hunt them anymore. And some of that is going to be where they have had chronic wasting disease get out into the wild herd, they've seen reductions in the size of the herd too. If all those come to fruit, yeah, we could see a major impact to the trust fund based on a lot fewer licenses sold. Now, the other side of that is a chronic wasting disease. We spend quite a bit of money on testing for the wild herd to confirm that it's not in the wild herd or to find it early if it is going to be in the wild herd. And we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on that testing every year, but it's something that we feel we really have to do because where they have had early detection of chronic wasting disease, they've been able to contain it. Where they haven't had that early detection or they haven't worked to contain it, it's spread out in the wild herd and it's there to stay. And maybe the last issue that we'll talk about is just the long-term popularity of hunting and the impact that could have on the fund. Could you touch on that briefly? Well, for a number of years now, the Fish and Wildlife Service has done a national survey and how many people fish and hunt. And I'm sorry to say that until this year, there was a fairly steady decline in the participation numbers for both hunting and fishing. Until this last time they did this survey, and then it's ticked up a little bit. So there's a lot of competition for young people's time these days. School, sports, everything surrounding school, there's lots of time involved in that. Hunting and fishing is kind of lost out in that competition. But we're starting to see some trends like it's turning around. For example, in our hunter education program, for a lot of years, it was teenagers that were taking these classes. You have to be at least 12 to take hunter education. And we're seeing a lot of people in that 12 to 16, 17-year-old that were in these classes. Well, now it's about half and half. About half of them are those teenagers, and the other half are older people in their 20s. And the theory is, and it's really just a theory at this point, but the theory is that now those young adults, they're through high school, maybe even through college, they've got disposable income for the first time in their lives. They've got more time. Even though they may be working full-time, they probably got more time than they ever had, and they're coming back to hunting and fishing. We're very encouraged by that trend, very encouraged by some of those numbers, and we're working hard to try and keep those numbers up as high as we can. When we're looking at recruiting new hunters, it's a matter of educating the youth and exposing the people who have never hunted to hunting and fishing. But it's also a matter of making sure those that have tried it and that point of deciding, am I going to become a hunter or not, Mm -hmm. you've got to support them too. And so you've got to give them people to talk to about hunting. You've got to give them opportunities to hunt with other people. That kind of social interaction is a big piece of that too. With the fishing side, it's a little easier because it doesn't take the investment in time and equipment. You can buy a fishing pole for a lot less than you can buy a shotgun. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have that big investment in equipment. 
And so it's easier for the whole family to go fishing. You can buy a kid pole for not much at all, and, and mom and dad can get one, and all of a sudden now the whole family's out fishing uh, for a lot less than the whole family could go hunting. The opportunities to fish are a little more obvious and a little easier to find than the opportunities for hunting, too. So overall, we're hoping that this trend is going to be start reversing and we're going to start seeing more people going outside and having fun in the outdoors and hunting and fishing. Well, with that positive note, I think we'll finish up this conversation. Chuck, thank you again for taking the time to have this discussion with us. Well, you're very welcome. I appreciate the chance to talk to you about it. Thank you. Thank you.